Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Means, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. On today's episode, I speak with Malika Jabali, but before I get to that, I just wanted to remind everyone to please subscribe to the podcast by going to wherever you listen to podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Spreaker, SoundCloud, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, to give us a nice little subscribe so you can find out more about the podcast and listen to more of our episodes. You can also find out more about the Left Pocket Project by going to Twitter and finding us at at LeftPOC, and that's L-E-F-T-P-O-C. Again, that's LeftPOC, L-E-F-T-P-O-C. And of course, don't forget to visit our Patreon where all of our information and resources are free, 100% free. No uh, paywalls or hidden episodes or things you have to pay for. But we, of course, welcome any and all donations that you can spare. A dollar or more a month goes a long way, and I'll get into a little bit of information as to why that is. Um, But you can go to patreon.com, and that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash left P-O-C. And there you can find all of our podcast episodes, additional resources, readings for when we do Reading Revolution episodes, and much, much more. But I wanted to just remind you of where your money goes. Uh, So when you donate a dollar or more per month to the Left Pocket Project podcast and the project itself, first of all, it goes into web storage. So for all of our audio recordings and things like that, I can store them, uh, but that costs money. So in order to do that, of course, your support goes a long way. I also pay my assistant. I pay uh, Richard, my co-host, basic things that are necessary for running this operation out of my house. Um, So again, much appreciated for any of your assistance and it goes a long way. Anyway, now on with the show. So hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Left Pocket Project podcast. This is Wendy Muse, your host. Unfortunately, Richard, uh, again, consecutively this week, wasn't able to join us. He wishes he could be here as per usual, um, but he'll be back very soon for the next few episodes. Um, on today's show, we actually have a special guest whom I actually had thought had been on the show before. I think just because in my mind, I was like, of course, she's been on the show and I'd wanted her to be on the show for uh, some time, but actually she's a first time guest. So welcome Malika Jabali. Hi, Wendy. Thanks for having me. And thank you for coming on. Um, so many of you may be familiar with her work because she's been on a lot of shows. She's talked about her um, research and writing. Uh, but one of the things that really, I think in my mind at least sticks out is that you had done a lot of research and writing about the 2016 election, and in particular, um, the sort of the groups of people in Milwaukee, if I'm correct, um, who had stayed home from the vote and decided not to vote Republican or Democrat and just sort of sat on the sidelines, but who were particularly of Black communities who decided to abstain from voting. Um, and you, in particular, talked about the sort of, if I'm not mistaken, the name of the article was uh, the anxi- economic anxiety and Blackness or something of that sort. Correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> 
the color of economic anxiety. Thank Close. you. That's much better. <laughs> it's about what I mentioned though. Um, yes, it is. <laughs> and I'll have that in the show notes for anyone who has not been able to read it. It's an amazing article. You should definitely check it out. But I think it's one of the things that many people have sort of regurgitated the arguments from without citing you. So we're going to cite you today um, <laughs> and make sure you get credit for this amazing piece of work. Um, and I think something that is sort of emblematic of a lot of your analysis, which is making sure that you highlight the intersections um, and interweaving aspects of class and race um, in America, and particularly around electoral politics. So um, again, thank you for that amazing Thank piece. you. Thank you um, for the lovely intro. <laughs> sure. So I, what I also wanted to get at today is primarily this question of Kamala Harris. And I sigh deeply <laughs> just saying her name because the appointment itself or, you know, the, the, the handpicking of Kamala Harris as VP wasn't necessarily a surprise to me, um, but it, that doesn't make it any less of a disappointment. And as a whole, this entire election season has been quite the disappointment. Um, and of course, the icing on the cake is everything with the pandemic, which was also unexpected. Uh, so I think things went in a, they sort of did a, took a pretty jarring turn at one point uh, and went off the rails and in a way that I think unfortunately is detrimental to a lot of the movements that we have been advocating for and supporting on the left. Uh, so what were your first uh, first thoughts when you saw that Kamala had gotten the position and I guess in general what your thoughts, loose thoughts and assessments have been of the primaries and leading into the general as a whole? I think it was very much like your reaction where I was disappointed, but not surprised. I think it was expected that well, we already knew that she was in the top running and uh, was likely going to be the VP, um, the, was going to be joining the ticket with Joe Biden. So I think that was pretty much expected. What I am concerned with the most isn't actually her appointment. It is the fact that we're going to have yet again black representation, a black face in a high place, and we will not be able to critique the systems that uh, benefit certain individuals. You know, they benefit people like Kamala. Capitalism benefits her. She benefits from having ties to, you know, tech billionaires and Wall Street billionaires but we're not gonna necessarily be able to share in that wealth for, you know, the, for the masses of, of black people and working class people. So you get this exceptional person who uh, gets to be the face of blackness and of diversity um, within the country, but none of the, the benefits of that really trickle down to other black people. And instead of being able to talk about that, to be able to continue to talk about capitalism, to be able to continue to talk about uh, fundamental changes to the system like Medicare for all, and or these are just like kind of changes to the social welfare state, I should say, but Medicare for all or canceling student debt. If we talk about those things, then it is uh, even more problematic because you have a black woman who's leading it. So not only do we not get to encourage these kinds of policies, but it's discouraged because we have a black woman at the helm and we have a, a black face at the helm and we're not going to be able to push for those things as much because they're going to be charges of, of racism and sexism, which are uh, valid and important. And we know that that can happen, but it will be secondary to the needs of the people. 
then what is your response, for example, to, um, you know, so, how do I put this? There, if you look at Biden in the election, right, in the primary, and you look at the predominant makeup of the demographic makeup, at least of the people who voted for him, um, it's predominantly Black people, so it seems, at least from the Southern uh, voting body, and it doesn't seem to exactly be like super rich Black people, right? I know that there was a sort of, um, there was a fever pitch of sorts to get uh, Biden to get a female, a black female VP, for example, that was definitely pushed by black celebrities. But it doesn't feel like the voting body on the ground necessarily was, was super wealthy. They're definitely black, but not necessarily super wealthy that supported Biden. Um, so how do we sort of square this circle of, or the incongruency, I should say, of lower economic uh, black voters perhaps supporting a ticket that doesn't really look out for their interests, but at the same time being appreciative of the kind of representative nature of Kamala's presence there. Yeah, it's going to be hard to find a black electorate, uh, electorate that is not going to be, you know, working class and middle class, um, you know, or nearing, you know, nearing poverty. And so this idea that perhaps, you know, this was a, a working class or middle class um, contingency of black people, you're going to have that who, whoever is going to be the Democratic nominee and Black people vote for them because most Black people vote for Democrats and most Black people are not super wealthy. We have, you know, 10 times less wealth than white households do. So that is the, the group that we're always going to be working with for the most part when you're talking about Black people. And so I think the key here isn't so much that, you know, there is this, um, this lack of a, uh, an appeal uh, towards class from other candidates, it's more so that black people overall tend to vote for, when they do go to uh, the polls and when they do support a primary candidate, tend to support what uh, the democratic uh, establishment endorses. And so if you look at 2008, when Hillary Clinton was first running against Barack Obama, most black people thought that it was more likely for Hillary Clinton to get the nomination. And so they supported her. The Democratic National um, Committee, they supported Hillary Clinton. So it was like, okay, we're going to go with the safe choice. So black people tend to go with the safe choice. And if anyone wants to try and make um, kind of parse out like who this, this group is and, you know, pretend as if, there is some large, you know, class distinction that you can make with black people in their voting choices, they lose out on the fact that most of us are not doing that great. And so for some people who say that, I wonder if they would apply the same argument to when Bernie Sanders was actually leading among black voters right before South Carolina. So I think he had about like 28% black support nationwide and then uh, Biden was probably a, a few percentage points lower than that. So it's not like, you know, black people are like, oh, Joe Biden is, is the one for the black working class. It was black people are for who we think can, you know, is a safe choice to be a Republican in the general election. Right. And that was more or less, I mean, I know this is sort of beginning before the pandemic hit, but it was certainly accelerated by presence of the pandemic. I think that fear kind of really set in um, and pushed people to vote for what was perceived as at least the safe choice, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he, he was someone that a lot of Black communities knew for a while, but even 
knowing him, it's not like uh, the black electorate during the primaries thought of him as uh, their candidate, at least, I mean, for the majority of like the primary season from like, you know, we could say January, 2019 up until February, he had like a strong lead, but in January and February, he had started to dip quite a bit. And folks forget that he did not have a monopoly on, on black votes. He did not have an, a, a monopoly on even the Southern black vote. And as we know, for younger black voters, Bernie Sanders has been leading them in multiple polls. And to this day, there's still uh, some gaps in enthusiasm for Joe Biden. So we can't underestimate uh, the appeal of having a safe choice who people have been seeing in the media, who was relatively untested uh, in you know, mainstream media outlets and cable news, who has not really faced as much scrutiny as his record probably requires. And we also have to remember that people who are voting in the primary don't represent the full black community. I believe in both Michigan and South Carolina, turnout had dropped from 2016 in the primaries. So you're talking about a relatively um, minor pool of black people and the people are kind of extrapolating from that what the whole black community wants and needs. Right, and not only is it a small, it's a small group of voters in general, um, not just for black voters, but in general, right? Like for the party itself, um, it's a very small fraction of the larger voting body that would be voting in the general, uh, or that would arguably be eligible to vote in the general, because there's also the issue of mass incarceration and how that disenfranchises people, especially people of color um, who would be voting, black and Latino uh, in particular. But on that note, um, one of the things that I I recall saying when you and I had interviewed for Jacobin for the Dake podcast with Daniel Denver, and we were actually talking about Biden. So this is like, wait, it feels like 30 years ago, um, but it was what, <laughs> last year or maybe 2018 when we had this discussion? I'll post it I, in the show notes, but. Yeah, I think it was maybe last May. Yeah, well, <laughs> it feels like forever ago, but we, one of the things that I had mentioned in the discussion was that, and that I thought you had a great counter to was that, um, you know, for black people in the South and I'm, I'm a black Southerner, um, I was born and raised in the South. One of the things that I think, um, has some salience for our, for us is the likelihood of a black or a white person, excuse me, to be comfortable around us, especially someone who is white and male and older. I think we're so used to having sort of contentious relationships or engagements with such a population that when we see someone who feels, who seems at least uh, comfortable like Bill Clinton, because we talked a lot about Clinton in that interview as well, someone who seems comfortable around us, it then is sort of, it translates into a kind of, um, that warmness at least translates into a kind of, um, I don't know, perceived likelihood to benefit us when in office, right? To at least be on our side, to kind of advocate for us. So, okay, this person is not a black person, of course, under the assumption that a black person would also advocate for us, which is not always the case. Mm -hmm. um, but we, we kind of assume that, okay, this person looks like he's down. So maybe he'll be on her side, on our side when we need him. And one of the things that you mentioned that I thought was great in that interview was that statistically speaking, while Bill Clinton did well in his first election for governor in uh, Arkansas, he didn't do as well in the, the, re the, the second run, right? I think you mentioned that voter right. population was down, uh, votership among black population 
elections in uh, Arkansas was down. And so I think people were try starting to kind of figure out, wait a second, he might seem like he's for us, but he's putting in policies that aren't necessarily benefiting our community. Do you think that, uh, this is a big weird question, but do you think that his proximity to, that Biden's proximity to blackness and especially black womanness um, in Kamala might function the same way it did with Obama in terms of his likability? That's a really interesting question. I've never really thought about the specific connection to Black womanness. I think Bill Clinton benefited from just seeming down with Black people generally and seeming hip. Um, but the Democratic Party has really been pushing forward this idea of, you know, supporting Black women at least when it comes to uh, like the imagery and the PR campaigns and the paraphernalia. So I, I do think it is uh, likely that Biden will benefit from that proximity. But I, again, I, I caution against us, um, just the general uh, like folks who think about politics and punditry and you know, media types from using that as an example for what it, it uh, means for black people. And so the reason why I talk about the general election in 1996, well, where Bill Clinton actually had the lowest black voter turnout of any uh, democratic nominee over the past, uh, I wanna say from the time before that up until now, it's been like 30 years. So if you look at voter turnout over the last 30 years and like voter turnout by race, the lowest was in 1996 for black people. And enthusiasm for Joe Biden overall, even though he will excite a segment of black women, enthusiasm for Joe Biden amongst black people is lower than it was for Hillary Clinton and it's lower amongst uh, younger voters. So we, have to look at kind of what is happening amongst the people who aren't elevated by the Democratic Party, who aren't the black women that are, you know, getting the Yes Queen stickers and bumper stickers and, you know, they're not HBCU uh, alumni. There are, there's a whole world of black people who just become disillusioned altogether who we do not hear from and they're not elevated. So then we just end up getting surprised during the general election. Right, and also, especially in a pick like Kamala Harris. What's interesting is like during the, the primaries, if I recall correctly, there were there was at least more visible black uh, women support behind people like Warren, who had kind of made it an ex explicitly her her mission of sorts to kind of portray herself as someone who listens to black women and kind of carrying that that phrase, uh, turning it into something that was a little bit more literal, right? So saying, I'm actually literally having meetings with black women um, to talk to them about the issues that they are concerned about and I recall there being a group called Black Women For and they you know were for Warren um, that sort of came about shortly before announcing an endorsement for for Warren. Um, it was primarily made up of, of um, notable Black activists and women who are very active online but I think that image at least carried a bit more and in contrast to what seemed like a less like a much smaller I don't know group of Black women supporting Harris even though there were women like Barbara Lee who endorsed her, to my surprise, um, there were there seemed to be kind of a like crickets right when it came to black like notable black female support for Kamala versus Warren. And I'm just trying to, to figure out like, do you think that may um, hurt Kamala in the end? That hurt she seemed to have sort of a lack of black female support 
um, going into the primaries. It's such a different world after uh, or in the midst of the uh, coronavirus pandemic that I don't think it is necessarily, I don't think it's going to hurt uh, Biden and Kamala, but I don't think that they're bringing anybody new in. So if you look at polls, uh, even with Essence, and Essence is not, you know, a left-wing outlet, Essence magazine, <laughs> they conducted a poll and they found that Black women, uh, their number one choice was undecided. So people just didn't know who they were going to support. And then their second choice was Bernie Sanders. Kamala Harris was third behind Bernie Sanders. And this is in an Essence poll. So that is kind of, that was the reality before coronavirus. But I think part of what people are grappling, grappling with on top of these material conditions that have clearly eroded for people, uh, deteriorated uh, in a like, like pretty actively, uh, even though you know people's conditions weren't weren't great, obviously throughout the country before that. But there's been so much of an erosion of, of people's material conditions, but also psychologically and mentally. And so this image of having someone who at least their background you're familiar with. This is a Harvard graduate, and and I have you know black women obviously in my uh, close circle and close friends who are HBCU graduates and uh, AKAs. You know the for folks who may not know. These are Greek letter organizations at colleges and universities in the United States uh, that are fraternities and sororities for historically created for black people. So we call them the divine nine. And so I have, you know, so much of my network that is a part of that. And so we just needed a win. And so even though she did not get that kind of support before uh, she suspended her campaign, it's likely that folks who were already planning to vote for Joe Biden now can do so a little bit less begrudgingly. But I do not think just given the fact that she's not really um, targeting a new base that is going to expand Joe Biden's support and that it's going to uh, particularly help him. Right. I mean, I, yeah, I agree with you. And I was actually surprised in some ways. I mean, I, it, there's a mix because on the one hand, I'm surprised um, I'm not surprised, I should say. I'm not surprised at all by the pick because it seemed like it was going in that direction. But at the same time, I'm surprised, at least from a strategic standpoint, like, why not try for someone who's, I don't know, from the Midwest or from a place that Joe Biden needs votes from or of a demographic that he needs votes from or whatever. It sort of just seemed like this was like picking Kamala was sort of a reiteration of what, of what we already expect in terms of, of people who would vote for him. Um, but what I was, you know, one of the things that, that did surprise me and that was disappointing, I should say, um, was the sort of outpouring of support uh, for Kamala being picked um, by people who are self-proclaimed progressive Black women. Um, and that, for me at least, as a woman who's a Black woman who's on the left uh, very solidly, I found incredibly alienating. And you and I have talked about this before, um, but I was wondering if you could kind of expound upon this issue, right? Like, what is it like for you as a Black woman who's on the left um, politically and who's written about, you know, so many um, socioeconomic issues affecting Black people, even incarceration and things of that sort? What is it like to then kind of see people within your social circles or within, you know, your friend group or elsewhere, your colleagues, et cetera, supporting someone and not begrudgingly, but like with enthusiasm, despite uh, their otherwise left-leaning principles. How do, how do you kind of deal with that? It's actually something that I'm still trying to 
grapple with and understand. Um, so it's curious more. It started off with frustration, mostly because it's like, haven't we seen this all before? We saw a, a, a black president leading the country through a crisis who did not give everyday Americans the kinds of uh, assurances and policies that they needed to combat at the time, you know, the foreclosure crisis. You have someone who was like relatively cozy with banks and friendly with billionaires and ultimately an expansion of um, black, you know, or, or the decline of black household wealth an expansion of you know poverty and unemployment and so all these things we saw so it just feels like deja vu that we are kind of wedded to this idea of just getting whatever you can and it takes away kind of any of the power and agency that we have typically had in our movements where it was very self-determined and where we pushed people as much as we could just kind of historically looking at the black power movement looking at the civil rights movement and folks pushed back on the establishment even with you know as much as the civil rights movement kind of um negotiated with lyndon johnson there was a very clear like tension there and so in a way it's like we just have lost the fight like we've lost any ability to fight back and you have two individuals who have benefited from their tough on crime stance uh as a part of this you know neoliberal third way strategy to appeal and you know where you're appealing to conservatives and appealing to black people symbolically uh, but your economic programs do not actually benefit those black and latino communities and you have two people at the height of you know that kind of democratic ticket in the most extreme pandemic who are only going to be appealing to the symbolism of having a black woman in office and so that's where the frustration comes from. It's not, you know, it's not her. It's not like a personal thing. And, you know, I write about politics. So this is not personal. It's just looking at people's policy and reporting on their policy. And she denigrated those same movements that she's benefiting from. And so the fact that folks can like divorce that reality from, you know, just this purely emotional um, kind of fleeting moment is quite frustrating because what matters to me is what happens to black people on the ground not just who we have in an ivory tower on the hill and i think too there's there's the element of like i don't know how to put this myself but i i know that i feel it there's that sense of alienation where no matter what space you're in, there's always this moment that kind of makes you feel alone about it, right? Um, and this includes other activist circles. So on the one hand, you have a left that's burgeoning and that's that's growing and you feel some encouragement by it in the US, but at the same time, there are all these sort of stumbling blocks over the question of race and sometimes gender as well. Um, and then at the same time, when you're within your own community, even perhaps very specifically speaking, so like within a circle of other Black women, there may be um, certain elements regarding class or um, sexuality or just like general politics that kind of can, I don't know, create rifts that, that make you feel like 
at least uh, speaking for myself, I should say that definitely make me feel like I'm alone. And I'm wondering how do we, how do we connect the dots for people that are right, that they're so close, right? Like I think people like Ava DuVernay is a good example. So she recently mm. put out sort of a, a screed mm. on Instagram, basically saying like, screw all the people who are not gonna vote and who are being critical of this ticket. Um, but it's ironic because she's put out, you know, very seminal um, documentaries that people often cite. I mean, especially right now with this groundswell of Black Lives Matter and, and pro-Black um, and anti-police brutality movements in the streets, everyone's saying like, oh, people should watch 13th and people should watch When They See Us and whatever. And I'm like, wait a second, like her politics though seem to be incongruent with some of the stuff she's put out. I mean, I know there's some criticism of, of her, the sort of limitations of her work as well, but it just seems like, how can you be, how can you tell us, how can you try to like silence critique that's really necessary, um, that's very much in line with, with your films. And, and, you know, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to my brain. And I'm trying to figure out how do we kind of bridge that gap for people who are so close to connecting and getting it and like wanting more from their elected officials and yet are settling and if not disparaging people who are pushing for, for what's right. Right. That is, um, I think that is the challenge of left, of, of black left politics generally. I think we historically have been uh, alienated and that didn't start with our generation. I think, um, I think it's a human, I think it's a human reaction to want to kind of congeal towards something that feels safe and secure. And right now you have a lot of insecurity. You have a fascist or someone at least getting towards fascism in the white house. There's a lot of upheaval. And so there's a sense of comfort with seeing someone who looks like you, who, uh, you know, is familiar with your culture, who, you know, they're probably going to walk out. I haven't seen any of the Democratic convention. They're probably going to walk out to some Stevie songs. There's going to be an electric slide in there. It's like, this is more <laughs> comfortable. And the bottom line is like, humans are, are human beings. And so I've been thinking about this too, because I do, you know, you know, we've talked about that. Um, like offline about how we feel alienated by this process. But, you know, folks like Martin Luther King were, were alienated. And this is not to compare us to Martin Luther King, but just to say that, you know, historical figures that we now revere experience the same thing from Black people who just kind of wanted to, I just, I just want to chill. I just want to be, you know, be home and be safe and secure. And all this other upheaval is too much right now. We got too much going on. We got, um, you know, white folks who are you know bull terrorizing our homes and, and bombing our churches and this is you know trying to push back with any sort of revolution it's too much to handle we got enough to deal with this you know this is me speculating um but just from from being a black person in this space and talking to friends and family that is the sense that i get we just need something normal so as humans, we are rational and we're also emotional. And so I think if you think of us no differently from white conservatives, if you have, you know, a president who says, I'm for you, there's too much upheaval, I'm going to return America to greatness, to something that you're comfortable with, there is like the converse that happens for, you know, kind of the flip side of that, that happens for black people. I need something comfortable and I need something safe and people are going to be 
emotional, even if you tell them all the policy. I know all that. I heard you. I know that Biden did this. I know comment and people know the record, but I need something safer than what I have right now. And so that's what folks are kind of congealing around. Right. It seems like people are kind of like sticking their fingers in their ears when you start to criticize them at all. Right. Yeah. Like there's a yeah. reluctance to even hear it, which is always yeah. strange to me. Like how, I mean, I'm trying to figure out like, because I hear this word thrown around a lot to the point that I'm just like tired of hearing it, but accountability, right? Um, this is something that, <laughs> this is also something again that came up a lot during the primary and that I even asked some people like, what do you, what do you mean by accountability, right? Um, how do we quote unquote hold a candidate's feet to the fire if we're not allowed to complain about them in the process of their candidacy? Um, or at least not necessarily just complain, but like discuss our grievances and mobilize around that. Um, even if they're not specific to that candidate, you know, if we're saying we want Medicare for all or we want a living wage or, you know, we want you to stop bombing uh, countries in the Middle East, it's not, it's not just a, a random throwaway complaint. It's a grievance that's being you know, launched towards a, a group of people with the power to actually change it and do something different. And they're choosing not to, but also the communities that would benefit from such changes are, are shutting their ears. Um, I don't know what to, what to make of that, you know? Right. And I guess to actually answer your question about how you bridge those gaps, um, I think when it comes to at least in national politics, it is uh, very, it's going to be an uphill battle. So I think if, because, you know, presidential politics is, is very sexy. We talk about it all the time. Like that's what gets the, it predominates the conversation in the media narratives. But if you allow people to see sort of this, this same dynamic, um, but on a local level where they can actually change things and shape politics uh, or at least have more influence over it, then you can get folks to raise their consciousness, to think more critically about the system, to think more critically about, you know, the money in politics that is benefiting, you know, a, a Kamala or a Biden. And just as an aside, Kamala got more billionaire money uh, than any other Democratic nominee when she was still in the race. And Joe Biden right now is outpacing Donald Trump in terms of his billionaire donors. And so folks need to be able to gain a class analysis. I just can't see it happening in a presidential election with so much, you know, there is a lot at stake. And a lot of people do feel this very viscerally and, and closely. And you see, you know, hundreds of thousands of people or over 100,000 people have, have died from the pandemic. So no one wants to hear about our fancy schmancy class. I, I, you know, I hate to kind of reduce it to that, but folks don't really want to hear about a class analysis. You know, I just want to be alive. So if we can hone in on politics where maybe not as much is at stake, we can start introducing these ideas. You know, you've got, we need campaign finance reform. If you have, you know, billionaires and millionaires donating to candidates, then that's who they're going to be accountable to. They're not going to be accountable to you. Um, and it's hard to hear those arguments when there is so much noise around how, um, how high the stakes are right now, where it's like do or die, democracy is going to go to hell if we do not do something about this. And that's, that's going to be hard to shift um, if we're only looking at kind of presidential politics. 
Right. And that's something for sure that like, you know, we had, we heard the same arguments in 2016 as insofar as like, this is an existential like moment. We have to vote, like keep this person out, um, make sure that Trump doesn't become president, look at who he is, he's a fascist and a Nazi and all these things, which are all true. But uh, what's interesting is now we have proof, right? Because I think there was yeah. still some doubt. <laughs> some people are like, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm whatever for those people, but uh, most of us could see who he was from the beginning. If you start your campaign by calling Mexicans rapists and saying you want to bomb the shit out of uh, Arab countries and things like that, we kind of know where you sit on the, on the spectrum uh, of, right. of politics. But I think some people were still assuming that Donald Trump would just be this sort of like entertaining figure and, and like the, the WWE person or the, the lifestyles of the rich and famous 1980s guy instead of someone who was going to be enacting policies that were, that had hard politics behind them and that were far right. Um, but you focus a lot on the domestic sphere. One of the things I wanted to kind of transition to was just asking like, what are your thoughts on the, the sort of silenced aspect of Biden-Harris, which is foreign policy. It's something that, I, I mean, honestly, I don't hear anyone talk about this. Obviously people on, like, on Twitter, yes, but in the mainstream press, there's hardly any broaching of the subject of foreign policy as it relates to Biden-Harris, what they're gonna do with um, you know, the families at the border who are being separated, people who are being incarcerated um, for no reason whatsoever um, at the border and elsewhere. Uh, the bombing campaigns that continue uh, despite the, the pandemic. So what are your thoughts about the direction perhaps that they might try to strike on the foreign policy side? And do you think that there's going to be a parallel? Because I, I keep talking about Kamala like she's going to be the president because I really do think she, she is. Like Biden's <laughs> not all together yeah. there. Um, right. So let's, I just call her like she's going to be the president. Um, so I'm wondering what kind of approach do you think will be taken um, by a Biden-Harris, predominantly Harris ticket. Um, because I, I think of people like Obama, who sort of used his, like symbolically speaking at least, he used his racial background as a man who'd grown up in other parts of the world, who had lived in Hawaii, whose mother was white, whose father was Kenyan, you know, like African. There's all this sort of international aspects to his life um, that he sort of used to then bolster an image of being the peace candidate, right? Now, obviously, he he violated that pretty much the second he entered office, but he still got the, the Nobel Peace Prize and all of these things. So I'm wondering if, do you think that Kamala is going to strike a similar chord, or what do you think her approach is going to be based on her record, at least? I remember watching a video pretty recently where she was, uh, I think, speaking to APAC, and I want to say she was comparing their struggles to the civil rights movement that, you know, here's a marginalized group and they're trying to strike out as much as possible. And so at least when it comes to Israeli-Palestinian uh, relations, she's going to be definitely pro-Israel. You look at how she voted recently on an amendment that Bernie Sanders proposed in the Senate to cut the Pentagon budget by just 10%, she voted no. So all the Republicans voted no. And so uh, Harris and Tammy Duckworth sided with the Republicans to ensure that we wouldn't have an amendment passed to, uh, to reduce the Pentagon budget. So I think she's going to be as interventionist and as imperialist as the Democratic Party typically is on a national level. I don't think any of that is going to change. I think uh, in some ways, it could even be 
worse uh, because again, we're going to have this, you know, representation of blackness. So it almost gives people impunity to do whatever they want to do uh, where we're not even going to be able to critique them or it's going to critique of their policies is going to be discouraged because, you know, that's kind of what we told black people under Obama's presidency. Well, you can't talk about Libya and you can't talk about Syria and you can't talk about all these forces because, you know, you've got to get him. He has to win again in 2012. You know, do you want him to have, do you want a Republican to win in 2016? So you cannot, you can never critique their legacies. So I think it could uh, be even worse under a, a Harris presidency. And certainly with regard to immigration, it also seems like it might be the same, if not worse. Although she's a bit contradictory on this. So I know, if I recall correctly, when she was in office in California, um, she had she had given the go-ahead basically for um, cops to also turn in parents to ICE, right? If their children were truant, if I'm not mistaken. So under this like truancy, punitive truancy program um, that would definitely, you know, threaten parents whose children didn't go to class with arrest or fining. Um, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, she also, uh, the immigrants were also subject to, to being arrested by ICE, if I'm not mistaken. So it wasn't even, I, yeah, I wasn't aware, I wasn't aware of that. I do know that her record, I mean, since she has been a candidate, uh, or when she was a candidate, she had campaigned on, I think she might have even suggested that she would abolish ICE. Uh, but, you know, these are the campaign promises that can kind of go with the wind as she has with other promises like supporting Medicare for all or, you know, looking at her, her college um, student loan debt cancellation plan where it was like very, very uh, means tested and fine tuned and was only going to serve a, you know, a small amount of people. So it's hard to say what her position is going to be at the border when all we've really have seen are, are these campaign promises, but I just can't imagine her pivoting more to the left when we talked about this previously in a previous point, but folks are willing to vote for anybody as long as they get Trump out. And they're already appealing, you know, the Democratic Party is already appealing to conservatives and having Republicans in the Democratic Party convention. Um, the DNC. So I can't imagine her fighting for any of those promises when they have a new set of people to be accountable to. You know, it's going to be the billionaires who are funding them and financing them. It's going to be APAC. It's going to be uh, conservatives that are that they're trying to draw to the Democratic uh, Party in twenty in twenty twenty in November. Right, like it'll be this, these Lincoln Republicans or whatever they call themselves uh, that are putting millions of dollars into, into the Biden campaign uh, for advertising, at least. Um, you know, one of, one of the other things that's interesting to me about, about this ticket is, especially, con you know, thinking about your previous research, and um, I think I would argue the article that sort of put you on the map um, about people who stayed home in 2016. What I'm wondering is like, Despite the pandemic, are you afraid or interested perhaps in the fact that there might still be a contingency that, that's, or a, a cohort that stays at home? Um, maybe even in swing states, uh, because they see this as a, a sort of reminder that we're not listening to you, we're putting in people in office who are going to continue to kind of um, ignore your economic concerns. 
you know, and, and arguably even even sort of cultural ones, uh, because Kamala herself is, although she is Black, she's not necessarily African-American in the traditional sense. Um, so I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that some people might still see this as, as a reason to stay home? And sorry, one more thing to add. Um, I know there's been some debate over whether or not Black men, Black um, African-American men will support Kamala because of her uh, sort of carceral uh, nature um, okay. and there's been some some ink spilled about black men supposedly being uh, you know uh, misogynistic and not interested in voting for a black woman but it seems like it lines up more closely with her policies so I thought I'd, I'd just ask you like what do you think is going to happen with the same cohort that you discussed and researched in your work mm -hmm. for 2016 this time around if we look at hints of the primary where Michigan and that's I covered the Midwest in a lot of my reporting because that's where black people are experiencing the most extreme racial disparities uh, particularly when it comes to economics and the black voter turnout in Michigan had actually gone down and this is after you know people are familiar with Trump people are familiar with the stakes they're familiar with uh, they knew that the pandemic was happening and that there was a failure on Trump's part and the black voter turnout was still relatively low I mean this is you know of course the, the pandemic is going to affect everybody's turnout, but black people's was um, even lower than kind of relative to, to the rest of the population who did come out and vote. So I, I can't say that my uh, reaction is fear. It is empathy. It is uh, understanding. It is knowing that a lot of these communities, if you look at some of the swing states, uh, in particular Michigan and Wisconsin, and, and the color of economic anxiety was focused on Wisconsin, where its biggest city, Milwaukee, is about 40% black, 4-0, which is you know, more than Houston and Brooklyn and a lot of other cities that we think of as black cities. And they have been in an economic decline for 40 years. So this preceded uh, Trump, it preceded Biden, it preceded uh, even Reagan. There has been an economic decline here that has not been addressed that is disproportionately affecting black people and so I, I can imagine these the same group of people saying our lives have not substantially changed in fact it's gotten worse under these democratic presidencies under democratic governors so for me the party system and electoral politics makes no difference whatsoever and there's a growing number of black people who are feeling that way the uh, census for i think it's the black census lab they did a study on you know where are black people right now politically and again this is before the pandemic so things could change uh where more of them are feeling or more of them are aligning with independence as opposed to any particular party and more of them are feeling like uh politicians are not serving them so there's like a pretty substantial amount of people who feel like electoral politics does nothing for them and so i you know, I get concerned when you have these, you know, prominent black people who are just wanting to shame these voters instead of listening to what they've been trying to tell people. They've been trying to tell us through their urban rebellions. They've been trying to tell, been trying to tell us this in Ferguson. They were trying to tell us this in Milwaukee with the killing of Civil Smith. And there was an uprising there just three months before the election. There were uprisings. Uh, there have been these uprisings in, in, um, kind of protest movements against policing in Chicago, and obviously with George Floyd in Minneapolis. And just as another point, I could go off about this girl forever, but <laughs> Minnesota has the highest racial inequality in the country. And there's, they also have the highest gap in 
of voter engagement between black and white people. So white people mm -hmm. are the most engaged in Minnesota and black people are the least engaged. So there's the highest gap that's happening in the state that also has the worst outcomes for black people in the country. So all these things are happening in the, Met, in the Midwest in former uh, either democratic strongholds or places that are swing states. So I can see the same contingency being like, well, this is the same as it's always been. So no, I'm not gonna come out and vote. And instead of appealing to them and talking about their needs, people are just shaming and it is completely ineffectual. Yeah, it's interesting too that there's, I mean, not interesting, but depressing and sad and frustrating that there's the shame element, but there's also on the other side, or at least the other side of the left, right? If we're looking at two two sides of the left coin, one being liberal and one being more, um, you know, further to the left. On the further left side, there also seems to be a complete dismissal or ignoring of the Black Midwestern population almost. Um, there's often this sort of mythical constructed idea of the working class that tends to be in, in the sort of presentation that some people give a, a white male. Uh, a white male Trump voter, in fact, despite the fact that most of the people that put Trump in office were like doing okay economically and wouldn't be considered working class in the slightest. Yeah, there, there is a huge erasure of the black working class for all types of reasons. And I think primarily it was a misreading of the 2016 election, or at least not telling the full story. So of course there is a story of some uh, white voters who flipped from Obama to Trump. Um, Data for Progress did a study about that. And so there was, I think, maybe 7 million people uh, throughout the country who voted for uh, President Obama and also voted for Donald Trump, which is, you know, very curious. Like, you, it's hard to imagine that there are that many people. And so 7 million people and Hillary Clinton lost by about 88,000 to 100,000 votes. I, I kind of see different figures, but it's within that range. So if those folks stayed within uh, the party, Hillary Clinton would have won, you know, by a landslide. So that's one side of the story. And that is, that's true. Um, whether or not they're actually working class is, you know, debatable. Um, but you did have at least people who saw themselves or supported Obama and, and also supported Donald Trump and did not vote for Hillary Clinton. But then you have an almost equal number of non-voters, people who flipped from Obama to not voting at all. And those voters uh, trended younger, they trended uh, people of color, and they trended more liberal to progressive, where they supported standard Democratic Party items, but also, you know, a, a livable wage, like having a $15 minimum wage and other issues that were more progressive. And so this massive study showed that, you know, it's not just, you know, Bernie bros who are kind of going to third parties and staying home, but it's a lot of people of color who are not well off, who feel disenchanted by, you know, at least by their choices in 2016 and whether that plays out in 2020, um, kind of remains to be seen. But that erasure of that, that demographic, I think, uh, is out of ignorance from not realizing how many black people stayed home and if you don't mind me going off on that for like one more second. No, of course. Go ahead. I, I compared uh, census data. So the census puts out a voter supplement every November, a couple of weeks after each presidential election. And I looked at that data over the past uh, maybe 20 or 30 years. And in 2016, 
the number of black voters, not the number, but the percentage of black voters who did not vote because they didn't like the candidates or uh, just their, their answer was just not interested. So they didn't like the candidates or the issues or they just weren't interested in voting at all was 40%. So that's four zero. I'm using a lot. There's a lot of 40% in this, <laughs> in this interview. <laughs> but uh, so actually, no, it was about 47%. So about 47% of, of black uh, people who voted and who stayed home in 2016 declined to vote for those two reasons. And about 7% declined to vote because of things that would suggest voter suppression. So if you have about 40, 47% of black people who are staying home for like kind of legitimate reasons related to the candidates and, you know, the policy, and you compare that to when George Bush was in office and when, not when he was in office, when he was running in 2000 and then 2004, that number was like about 7% or 6%. And then in 2004, it was a little bit um, lower than that. So you had like four times or six times the amount of black people who stayed home because they didn't like the candidates as they did in, in the year 2000. I'm not sure if that's like that stat is clear, but basically in the year 2000, fewer black people stayed home for policy reasons. There were some other reasons, but in 2016, that number uh, was increased sixfold. So something serious happened in 2016 that no one is really talking about. And that, that number also increased for whites uh, and Latino voters, for white and Latino voters. So more people decided that they weren't interested in the candidates uh, by like a, a factor of, of like six or five than they did in 2000 and 2004. So folks just did not like who the candidates were, but we don't really get that sort of narrative because it's not convenient, you know? But I mean, isn't it also just like, this is post-recession voting of sorts? It's post-poor economic recovery voting? You're talking about for 2016 not being interested in the candidates? Yeah, like, do, do you feel like, a, I mean, because I know, I know that there's this economic anxiety narrative, right? But don't you think there's also um, some truth to that for, for the people who decided to stay home? It's It could be just a matter of and I mean, among white, Latino, and black voters, um, just a matter of thinking that they're not gonna, the candidates aren't going to do anything. So I, I'll just let the the wind blow where it goes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you don't feel like you're, you know, because the questions are, you know, you're, do you are you interested in the candidates for their issues? And so, if the issues of the candidates aren't talking about the that economic anxiety that's happening across race, then that would be a you know a valid uh, reason to check that off on the census. So you would say, well, you know, I'm, I you know haven't been employed or I'm underemployed. I've been working for some gig company, not making enough money, and Hillary Clinton's not talking about that. Donald Trump, I know, is racist, and he's also not really talking about that. So I'm not going out to vote. You know, so you can kind of extrapolate the types of scenarios that people would imagine when they said they're not interested in the candidate's issues, but she wasn't really speaking to that class, uh, to that economic anxiety across race, if she even really talked about it at all. Mm -hmm. The narrative was entirely around, you know, we cannot have Donald Trump in office. He's the boogeyman. Keep him out. And for a lot of people, that doesn't affect their day to day. They don't really know him that well. They don't know about what, you know, he might bring to a presidency, but they do know that they're not able to pay their bills. They do know that their house was foreclosed on. They do know that they're, you know, uh, drowning in student loan debt. And if candidates aren't really dealing with that, 
then it makes sense that they wouldn't feel like there's a reason to vote for you. And what's fascinating too, for me at least, is in, in thinking about if the economic question is sort of um, what made people feel like they weren't being heard or listened to, um, cared about. I also wonder too, just about the racial component, because when you have a candidate like Hillary Clinton, whose own racist past could easily be exploited by a, an opponent, um, you know, I, I wonder, and maybe this wasn't articulated by some people, but I wonder if, if at least they were looking at both candidates and saying they were racist. So not just Donald Trump, but also looking at Hillary Clinton and saying, you know, she's a super predator lady. She's the lady whose husband was big on the crime bill. She's the lady who, who did this, that, and the third. Um, you know, I, I wonder if that's something that happened and also perhaps something that could happen with Joe Biden. I mean, it's certainly something that the Trump campaign is trying to <laughs> to jump on at the moment. Their most, one of their most recent ads is one that's a compilation of the, the racist and racially insensitive things that Biden has said. So I'm wondering if some people will um, kind of put the pandemic response to the side and, and say, well, both of these candidates are old racist white men. What good is that one? You know, not only the economic question, but also the racial question, if, if that'll come up. Yeah. No, yeah. I think that's a, that's a very, that's an excellent point. And if you talk to people on the ground, which is what the, that was the mission of the color of economic anxiety, which you can read in current affairs. It was just to get behind the data, behind what the census is telling us, behind what uh, the Washington Post is telling us about black people loving Hillary Clinton and actually talk to people about why they didn't go out and vote. And I recall um, one community um, elected official, Wendell Harris, who talked to me about his familiarity with Bill Clinton. And he's from, you know, a lot of folks who are, a lot of black people who migrated to Wisconsin and actually came from Arkansas. And so he was very familiar with Bill Clinton because he migrated from Arkansas and he was the governor or like running to be governor at the time or, or president, I can't remember at which point this was in the timeline. Um, but he was familiar with Bill Clinton's record. And he said Bill Clinton was campaigning on, be, on being more tough on crime than the Republicans were. You know, he made it a point to go back to Arkansas to make sure that he oversaw the execution of a black man who was convicted of a crime, um, who was facing the death penalty. And so he made his kind of entry into national politics being a tough on crime politician. And we know of the intersections between, you know, uh, policing and race and incarceration and race. So this is not something uh, like outside of the understanding of, of the average black person, especially black men. And, you know, Wendell is a, a black man who's also a socialist who, who sees in Milwaukee the, or in Wisconsin, the highest incarceration rate for black men in the state. So black men in Wisconsin are facing really extreme economic and, you know, kind of these racial, racialized oppressions through incarceration. And they see that nobody's really working for them. And so Hillary Clinton was just, uh, she did not do enough to <clears throat> divorce herself from her husband's record. If you also look at NAFTA and how it um, you know, facilitated the, the loss of jobs in the region, and they both supported it and still defended it. And black men had a disproportionate amount of, um, of representation in the manufacturing sector in Milwaukee. And so they've seen, you know, black people suffer 
under Bill Clinton and under these neoliberal policies, you know, they won't necessarily say this is a neoliberal policy, but they just know jobs have left, crime, uh, policing has gone up. So you have, you know, all these repressive forces honing down on black men in particular. And so, you know, there's a reason why they wouldn't want to vote for a Biden or a Kamala or a, a Hillary Clinton. Right. And I feel like, unfortunately, in the case of Kamala, again, I'm, I'm de de debating or disputing this claim that, uh, you know, the failure of, of black male support, or the supposed failure of black male support of Kamala is based in misogyny. What seems to me to be the case is perhaps there's a projection of a projection of, of Biden's policies onto Kamala, right, and sort of making them into one unit. Um, because I think that there is an understanding of what Kamala did in California, but also now that she's the VP and that Biden is the presidential candidate, some might sort of ignore what Biden has done and then recognize, you know, like, or, or not necessarily ignore it, but sort of see them as a whole, um, as sort of symbolizing this sort of racist, classist, carceral ticket. Um, and I, I wonder if, if there's really going to be some sort of electoral consequence of that choice. Yeah, I, I wonder that as well. And it's really hard to say how the election will, will shape up because Democrats are leaning hard on those Lincoln Republicans and people who are defecting from the Republican Party. So what is even more... Um, I guess maybe tragic about the circumstances we're in right now is as certain black voices are being elevated, I think there are going to be a lot of black people who will feel disaffected and not vote, but then they're going to be replaced by these Lincoln Republicans, but it's going to seem as if, because, you know, if they win, it's going to be like, well, everybody wanted this. Black people wanted it. This is what um, the Democratic Party, this is like a, a you know, a success of the Democratic Party, like bringing these different forces together. And we're still going to ignore the fact that a lot of Black people are probably going to stay home and elevate Kamala um, as like this representative for Black people, even if they come out and vote in far fewer numbers. Um, on that note too, I, I'm wondering, what are your thoughts about, you know, the as a Black woman yourself, this idea of a kind of a, a, a symbolic um, black face and a black female face in particular as the head of empire and how that sits with you um, and, and sort of how that feels for you as someone who's on the left. Is there a way to kind of, is, do you feel like there's a constant need to reiterate your own politics amid something like this and someone like Kamala being chosen as said representative? I, yeah, there is that need, um, and it's almost like we're uh, speaking into a void, but I think for my sake, it's out of general principle. Like, people need to know, when they look at the record and they go through the Twitter archives, <laughs> um, you know, and the media archives, they need to know that we were not all down for this in the same way that folks have kind of used this revisionist history to talk about how all these black people supported the crime bill. And it was a lot more complex than that. And the majority of black people did not support, um, they, they recognize the racialization of the crime bill and how deleterious it could be on our communities. And all of that is kind of erased. So for out of general principle, I have to, reiterate the fact that she does not speak for all black people. The Democratic Party does not speak for all black people. And you can see why, because of X, Y, and Z, because, you know, this amount of black people voted, uh, you know, less in the primary, even with Joe Biden in Michigan. 
fewer black people, a lower percentage of black people voted in 2016 in those swing states. Um, Hillary Clinton got, you know, less black support in South Carolina, or she got relatively like low voter turnout in South Carolina. So in a way, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm speaking for myself as somebody who is a socialist and anti-imperialist, but also for black people, for the masses of black people who are actually not really down for this agenda, but their voice, their voices get erased to benefit uh, an imperialist agenda. I'm not sure if I actually answered your question, but that's my, my screed. <laughs> no, you did. You did. And, and I think it, you know, it's, it's still, like I said, something that's, that I'm trying to grapple with. It's unsettling. Uh, you saw the, the commentary of people like Angela Davis, who, already had kind of alienated some of her supporters when she said that she was that we should vote for Biden, right? Or that she was going to vote for Biden. I don't think she necessarily endorsed him, um, but she did say she was going to vote for him. And this was prior to Kamala Harris being chosen as the VP. Um, but then once she was chosen, she did an interview with Al Jazeera in which she did say that she, you know, enthusiastically supported the choice. <laughs> Um, she also supported Barack Obama when he was um, nominated as the president presidential candidate, at least for the Democratic Party. Um, I don't think she supported him in 2012, but she definitely did in 2008, despite some warnings um, from leftists regarding his, his propensity for certain things that were against, that were counterproductive to the left agenda. Um, right. But, you know, I, where do we go from here, Malika? Like, what, are, <laughs> what are your thoughts about the future of, of left organizing and particularly left Black female organized, left black women's organizing right now. Um, what are we, what are we, what are we going to do with ourselves when Angela Davis is like enthusiastically supporting Kamala, Albert DuVernay is enthusiastically supporting Kamala. Where do we, where do, I mean, how do we mobilize um, at this point? And I would say post pandemic, regardless of how this election goes, because I'm sure if Trump wins again, especially with all the meddling, you know, domestic meddling with the post office and whatnot, if he does win, people like us who have been critical will be blamed for Biden and Harris's loss. And if they win, they will most definitely try to silence any dissent. So we're looking at two pretty negative outcomes. Where do you think we go from here? I think we have to look at the communities and people around us and our immediate surround, uh, not necessarily our immediate surroundings, but city and state politics, uh, community boards where decisions are also made and kind of uh, batten down the hatches and look more closely at uh, what we can do amongst each other. I think the problem is that black people aren't very organized. And so you talk about, um, you know, the the challenges for black organizing. Well, first we have to get organized. You know, you have <laughs> some mobile, yes. you know, some efforts that are mobilized around um, maybe particular issues. You know, you've got Black Youth Project 100, which started, you know, a lot of these organizations started through protesting police violence. And there are a lot of issues facing our communities that have legislative, um, that could have some legislative reform attached to it. You know, if you look at housing and evictions and uh, affordable housing funding of uh, pied-a-terre taxes and taxing the rich so that there's actually enough in city coffers to be able to afford social services. If you look at the way that states administer uh, healthcare, like they have a say in, in how many people can get, uh, you know, Medicare. 
there are so many things that are, ha or, or even, you know, police reform and budgets and, and accountability or abolition and defunding police, all that happens at the city and state level. So I think first you just need black people to recognize that this system, the, the presidential system is a very, very limited way of us uh, seeing real changes to our lives. Um, the both parties are accountable to um, corporate interests and the interests of their high dollar donors. And so I think we have to recognize the limits and then come together and form, uh, you know, that kind of organizing exactly where, where we live and that affects our day-to-day -day lives. And then once you organize, you have to have platforms that I think, you know, I, I work with a social justice organization called Operation Power that tries to get black people with an elevated class consciousness, class and race consciousness into elected office. And you can get, you know, radical state senators and radical, um, city council members and radical state assembly people and radical folks on the community board who can, you know, have some say in what kinds of developments come into your community and, and give recommendations to the city. So I think that's going to be very important is to look at sort of an inside outside strategy um, on the ground and locally uh, and, and by kind of elevating people's consciousness through that you can then say, okay, now four years down the line, here's our agenda for the presidential candidates, but also still recognize the limits of presidential politics when it's fundamentally capitalist and, and imperialist. Most definitely. It's funny because I was asked earlier today, you know, what do I think people should do or what do I think can happen besides just, you know, the, the federal level voting. And I, I said the same thing pretty much like local, we have to think locally. Um, we have to vote locally, make sure people show up at the polls for local decisions and local groups, local organizing. Um, but, you know, obviously it goes even further than that. And as you mentioned, in terms of making sure that people are mobilizing around issues and that they're educated on the issues. Mm -hmm. um, I think too, just like connecting the dots between what's happening economically and what's happening to us individually, right? Like there's, there seems to be this disconnect between Wall Street skyrocketing right now and doing really well as like more and more people are dying. I mean, it's, it's not funny. I'm laughing because it's so absurd, you know, like right. we're hit, we're almost close to 200,000 people and probably more than that if we really count people who like died when they went home from the hospital and stuff. Um, and we're looking at a Wall Street that's like surging all of a sudden. So it's this contradictory nature of, or seemingly contradictory nature of success on the economic end, but then suffering on the personal end. Um, and I think sometimes there's, a, there's an assumption that, that the economic, the financial industry is supporting us or for us, or like their success is our success and it's not anywhere close to that, so. Absolutely, yep. Yeah. Well, thank you, Malika, so much for joining Left POC, uh, the Left Pocket Project podcast. Of course, people will want to hear more from you. How can they do that? <laughs> you can find me on Twitter, um, Malika Jabali. And I also produced and wrote a short film called Left Out, uh, specifically about uh, kind of left politics in the Midwest and economic anxiety amongst Black people in the Midwest who are being erased by this appeal to white uh, working class and, and moderate voters. So that is, uh, it's on YouTube called Left Out and you can find it at bit.ly slash left out 2020. 
And all of that will be in the show notes. So for anyone who's interested, which I'm sure many, many people will be now, uh, make sure you go to the show notes and check out the links. Uh, they're all there, including some additional articles that Malika wrote um, and others that are related to our discussion. So again, thanks so much. And hopefully we'll have you back on soon because I'm sure there will be more shenanigans going on. That we'll Yeah, of course. <laughs> thanks <laughs> I can't again. wait to talk about it. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Left Pocket Project podcast. As per usual, just a reminder, feel free to check us out on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, blah, blah, blah. Of course, you can also find the podcast wherever you get your podcast. So iTunes, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Spotify, you name it, we're there. And of course, don't forget to check out our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash leftpoc, where you can donate a dollar or more each month uh, to help this project keep going and to help keep our content free. I just wanted to add a little note on that. Um, I recognize times are really hard right now, and we've gotten some messages from really amazing supporters who unfortunately aren't able to support financially anymore, um, and they're wondering what they can do. And I'm sure some of you who listen who might want to donate are wondering what you can do as well if you can't support us financially. We just want to say that we welcome any and all promotion of the podcast. If you talk to a friend, family member, retweet us, send a Facebook message to someone letting us know, or letting them know, I should say, about the podcast or an episode that you love. So obviously there are many, many ways to support us, and that's one of the ways. The other thing is, um, regardless of the significance of the financial contributions, which again, as I mentioned earlier on, go a long way for us, we really appreciate most of all the discussions that emerge from um, the interviews that we do and some of the talks that we have. We value the fact and the idea that you know, left discourse is changing, evolving very quickly and being enhanced by these kinds of conversations that we have. So that for us is the most rewarding, just on a completely intangible level, right? Like there are lots of things that people can do. We receive messages here and there that are really sweet and kind and remind us that we're not just screaming into the void. We're actually having an impact and we're listening to all of you too. Um, we really, really value this exchange and, and we want to keep it going by any means necessary and you're retweeting and giving us encouragement telling a friend a family member actually plays a huge role in that so again we thank you for it and appreciate it and that said thanks again please be safe out there be careful stay healthy support your family friends colleagues comrades and do whatever you can to to stay afloat amid everything that's going on right now um, you know, if, if, and when I receive, um, any sorts of links for resources, you know, scholarship opportunities, um, programs that you can enroll in anything that sort of allows for you to continue your studies with support, I'll be posting those also on my personal, um, Twitter page. I've been reposting a lot of GoFundMes, um, particularly for healthcare needs and housing needs. So if you have one of those, uh, please send a, a tweet to at Muse Wendy. Um, and it's, if you find, I'll, I'll try to promote the link as well. Um, I'll put that in the show notes. But if you have housing or health-related needs, please tweet at that, uh, add, to, add to that tweet thread, I should say, and I'll retweet them um, so that people can see it and donate. Because I recognize, again, these are really strange times, trying times, and we want to do whatever we can to support you all as well. So again, thanks so much. Have a good one.